you have uh, Bibles or using the Bibles that are under those chairs, you can make your way to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, in those hardcover black Bibles, you'll find 2 Thessalonians in our text today on page 990. Uh, we began, if you were with us, if you've been with us last week, a new series uh, that we were calling American Gods. I was pointed out to me that there's a TV show by that same name right now. Uh, no relation to that. I was not aware of that, that, uh, that show's existence prior to uh, this series starting. Uh, we actually called it that to avoid calling it American Idols because that sounded worse. But apparently this TV show is a little bit suspect and questionable. So um, don't hear the title of the sermon as a full uh, affirmation of going to watch that show. That was pointed out to me that I should probably clarify, clarify that. So uh, there it is. Uh, in each of these weeks, we're looking at one of what are known as the cardinal sins or the seven deadly sins. Um, one of the ways the scripture speaks about sin is that all sin is idolatry. Uh, disordered desire and affections, acts of worship, acts of devotion to a God that is no God at all. But in a unique way, the seven deadly sins are idols that compete for our worship and compete for our devotion. And so the church throughout history, the historic Christian church, has recognized these as cardinal sins. Uh, they're especially destructive, and they almost always give birth uh, to a variety of other kinds of sin. As I shared last week, we're, we're considering these on really two levels. Uh, one is the cultural level. In each and every era, in each and every culture, these sins take on their own forms of expression. And so we're looking at how each of these evidence themselves uh, in 21st century America. But more importantly, uh, we're considering this together at a personal level. Uh, so not just where these sins exist out there in the world around us, but where do we find these sins in here, in us? Uh, for those of you who are Christians, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or five decades, you will find that deep in the recesses of your heart, of your sin nature, uh, there remains an allure, uh, a proclivity to one or more of these sins. And so we can't be content to simply identify where these sins exist in the world around us. We have to see these sins exposed in our own lives uh, and come face to face with them so that by the transforming grace of God, we might, as the Apostle John writes in one of his letters, keep ourselves from idols. This morning, we're examining the sin of sloth. The sin of sloth. And sloth, even the word itself, is largely antiquated. It's not used very often uh, in our culture. And we tend to replace it with words like laziness or words like lethargy, something of that nature. But though sloth certainly includes those things, the historic church understood it more comprehensively than that, and for that reason, I think it's worth really considering and reclaiming this word. The Catholic theologian, for example, Thomas Aquinas, defined it this way. He said, Sloth is the negligence of a man who declines to acquire spiritual goods on account of the attendant labor. The neglect of spiritual goods on account of the attendant labor. In other words, it's, it's not just uh, sheer inactivity. It's, sloth is seeing that there is good to be pursued, good to be obtained, and declining to pursue it because it's going to take hard work to lay hold of it. More recently, uh, an author named Joshua Pease collected and distilled a number of different definitions of sloth, and he came up with this one. He says, sloth is a sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, 
enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. He goes on to say, a numbing, isolating, apathy-inducing state where life becomes about a passive absorption of content rather than an active pursuit of a God-given identity. There's a lot uh, in that, and we'll walk through some of it at least in our time together this morning. But as we move into today's text from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, consider these questions. Where do you see sloth in our culture today? Where are we prone to this? Where are you prone to this in your own life? Listen now with open ears to this book that we love, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let now your written word be heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand so that we might not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Uh, Three things that I hope we see together in this text this morning. Sloth's corruptions, some commands about sloth, and the cure for sloth. So corruptions, commands, and cure. So first, let's consider sloth's corruptions. Uh, It's not exactly known why the Thessalonian Christians here are being idle, at least some of them. Uh, It's possible that in trying to heed Paul's instructions about the imminence of Jesus' return, they have misunderstood and misapplied that truth. So they've quit their jobs and they're waiting for Jesus to come back kind of passively. Uh, It's also possible that some of them are exploiting the charity of wealthier Christians. Uh, In the early church, in the first century church especially, it was more common for Christians to share their goods, to live communally. So it would be possible for a number uh, of Christians, uh, many even, to live off the wealth of a few. Regardless for the reason why they are idle, what we read here very clearly is that Paul renounces idleness. And he builds in this passage a threefold case against it. That idleness and really the sloth that underlies it run contrary to apostolic tradition, the apostolic example, and apostolic teachings. So first, look again at verse 6. It's not in accord with the tradition that these men and women have received from Paul. So Paul, as is often his 
his custom, had already visited this church previously and then writes a letter back to them upon hearing a report from them. And when he visited this church in Thessalonica, as he did in all cities to which he traveled, Paul passed on the tradition that he himself had received, the tradition of the apostles, the tradition of the eyewitnesses of the first church. From the best that we can tell, uh, along with letters like Galatians, these letters to the Thessalonians are some of the earliest parts of our New Testament, some of the earliest recorded, written-down parts of the New Testament. So at this point, most of the apostolic tradition was passed down orally, faithfully from one church to another, from one generation to another, and ultimately then would be recorded in the Gospels uh, or in other apostles' letters, like Peter's letters or John's letters. Part of that tradition, what we understand here from Paul, is that even though Christians are called, we are called in our lives to watch and to wait for the return of Jesus. But we are to do that not passively, but actively. And we learn even from the words of Jesus himself that part of our waiting for his return, we have the great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. We have the great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, from the earliest teachings of the Christian faith, there's a command to not be idle, but instead to be active. Second piece here in verses 7 through 9, sloth is contrary to apostolic example. So Paul and, and those who came with him to this church in Thessalonica were very diligent and were hardworking during their time there. Elsewhere, Paul speaks a lot about the right that pastors, that missionaries have, uh, to be supported financially by those that they minister among. But by his own example, Paul almost always foregoes that right. He hardly ever takes, takes that right and exercises that right. And he does so because he never wants anyone to question his motives for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And so by his example, here and other places throughout the Mediterranean, he makes it very explicit the gospel does not lend itself, does not lead to a life of laziness, a life of luxury. The third part of his case that he's building here, verse 10 and following, sloth runs contrary to the apostolic teachings. So Paul has commanded, and here again commands, that Christians work hard and that they earn their own living. So from, from the get-go this morning, foundationally, it's important for us to see that by tradition, by example, by teaching, the gospel of God's grace and hard work are not at odds with one another. They're not at odds with one another. The, the two are often juxtaposed. The two are often presented as being mutually exclusive. But faithful discipleship, faithful Christianity, we might describe as grace that works. Grace that works. As Dallas Willard once put it, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. In other words, we, we don't work hard, we don't labor to earn favor, to earn salvation from God. We labor in response to the salvation that we've received through the work of Jesus. And the very apostles that give us this beautiful understanding, this very robust understanding and theology of salvation by grace alone, are the same apostles that for their entire lives labor and toil diligently. Now there are some fairly obvious reasons why sloth, this cardinal sin of sloth, is so destructive. Uh, it leads to poverty and hunger. It leads to the neglect of other people. But ultimately, sloth is such a big deal, and it classifies as a cardinal sin 
because it is a corruption of the good design of God. Specifically, sloth is a corruption of two things. It's a, it's a corruption of God's design for work and God's design for rest. So think about this with me together this morning. Uh, we are, as people, created for work. We're made for work. Uh, and part of what it means to image God is that we are workers. We are co-cultivators of all that God has made. So contrary to what it might feel like to you on Monday morning when your alarm goes off, uh, work is not God's curse upon humanity for the fall or for sin. Uh, In fact, before the fall, in the perfection of the garden, Adam and Eve worked. The cultural mandate that is given in Genesis to multiply, to fill the earth, to exercise authority over the earth, all of that comes before the fall. So in God's design then, faithful work we could describe as stewardship and service. Stewardship and service. We use our lives to steward God's creation, and we use our lives in service of God, of others, and of this world that God has made. You'll notice, I hope you notice, as we walk through this series on the seven deadly sins, that very often the seven deadly sins are the corruptions of the rhythms of grace that we looked at in our last series. So for example... In God's kingdom, faithful work is service, one of the rhythms of grace. Sloth is the corruption of that. Sloth is also the corruption of God's design for rest. So you and I are made not only for work, we are made for rest. That's also part of what it means to image God. Like God, we work, and like God, we rest from our labors. We call this Sabbath. Again, one of our rhythms of grace. We set aside one day each week from our labors to remember that we are dependent upon God, to remember our need for God, to be renewed and rejuvenated by the grace of God. And so here in verse 8, when Paul says that he toiled night and day among them, uh, he's not literally saying, I worked 24 hours a day. He's he's saying, I worked full time and diligently among you. But think, think about this. Even the way he says that points to God's design for rest and work. In the Western mind, in in almost all of our minds, night follows day. So we get up in the morning, that's the start of a new day, we work, and then at the end of the day, it's evening, it's night, and we rest. But in the Jewish mind, drawing directly upon the creation rhythms of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it's actually the other way around. That day follows night. As the refrain in Genesis goes, there was evening, and then there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. So in the kindness of God, think about this, you rest first. You start a new day with rest, and then you work. Consider then this morning how much sloth has corrupted our understanding of work and rest, and how pervasive sloth is uh, in our time and in our place. There are any number of variables, factors, for why that is, what we could point to in this. But one of the biggest has to be entertainment. Entertainment. We are an entertainment-driven, entertainment-addicted society. And make no mistake, the the American god of entitlement is a very close cousin to the American god of sloth. So we might define, in the faithful sense of the word, Sabbath, as active rest. And that's that's an oxymoron. So what I mean by that is, Though we cease from our labors, our hearts and our minds remain actively engaged, recognizing the good gifts of God, enjoying 
simply existing, being loved, being favored by God, apart from needing to do anything, accomplish anything, produce anything. Sloth, as that long definition suggested earlier, is passive. It's, it's mind-numbing. It's apathy-inducing. And is this not what passes for most entertainment today? Passive consumption of content in front of screens all the time, doing things that shut our minds off and help us to escape. Uh, This is not just by any means a problem for young people. It's a problem for people of all ages. But there is particular concern for what this is doing in the minds of young people as they are still developing in their brains and in their bodies. So studies are continually beginning to show the damaging effects of too much screen time and the damaging effects of continually checking social media. How that is robbing us of our ability to focus and to concentrate. How it starts to wire our brains differently. Even the chemical hormones we receive from like getting a like on a, on a social media page. Uh, how it leads to increasing isolation and depression and anxiety. One study concluded that students in Generation Z, which are those b- born between uh, the early 1990s and the mid-2000s, are less likely to drive, less likely to work for pay, less likely to go on dates, less likely to socialize without their parents. Uh, We talked last week about the sin of lust. Uh, Another recent study showed that young people today are having less sex than people of previous generations of the same age, young people of of previous generations. So in 1991, for example, 54% of high school uh, students reported having had sex. In 2010, it was down to 41%. So down 13% over those couple decades. Another study showed that teens today are drinking less alcohol than teens of generations gone by. Now on the one hand, we read those stats and that might make us think, well, that's great news. Uh, Teens are having less sex, teens are drinking less alcohol, but are we truly seeing God's redemption here? Or have we just traded one counterfeit God for another? And might it be proven to be true over the years to come that sloth is even more damaging than those other sins? A couple months back, uh, some leaders from our church were together and this topic came up. And it was pointed out in that discussion that today, uh, you can live almost a completely virtual life. You can win a war, you can win the Super Bowl, you can get married, you can build a house, you can get sexual gratification all from the comforts of your couch without pain, without sacrifice, without, as Thomas Aquinas put it, the attendant labor that is, before this generation, always been required for those things. As much of life has become simulatable, and and, and even as more of it will be, no doubt, in days to come, virtual life is not real life. It's not real life. It, It mimics aspects of it. But passive consumption of entertainment on end, excessive entertainment, it will no doubt deaden and dull your soul to real life. And herein lies the real damage of sloth. It's the corruption of work and rest as we've seen. You actually, as you you devote yourself to this God of sloth, you neither work nor actually rest not at least by the definition of God. So sloth sets you up to live against the grain of the world that God has made. If you're created for work and you're created for rest, and in sloth you neither actually work nor actually rest, sloth sets you up against the grain of God's world. 
and it attacks and it erodes the deep meaning and purpose of the life that you and I are meant to experience as the image bearers of God. So think about it this way. Sloth is an affront to your very humanity. It's an affront to your very humanity. It's a corruption of all that we are meant to be. And this is why Paul speaks so forcefully about idleness to the Thessalonians. So second, let's consider his commands, his commands about sloth. Uh, Paul gives a number of commands in this passage, some uh, to the idle persons themselves, and then others to the community, the people around those who are slothful. Let's start with looking at the ones directly to the folks who are idle. In verse 10, he says this, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Uh, A few considerations here. There is, first off, an inseparable connection between diligent labor and provision. But living in a prosperous culture, being born into a prosperous society, as nearly every one of us in this room has been, that can lead us to presume things, to assume things that we never really should. Uh, There are a lot of people in our day, from billionaire, heir, and heiresses, to regular Joes and Janes, who are able to really live most of their lives, float by most of their lives, without really ever having to own the responsibility of providing for themselves through their own hard work. Or who feel the freedom to, let's say, for example, wait for the perfect job that they absolutely love, rather than getting a job, keeping a job, in order to put food on the table and a roof over their heads. This is not, this should not be, can never become an assumption or a presumption for us. These things are luxuries. These things are entitlements. They become entitlements. But we are not entitled to everything that we think we're entitled to. And it's so easy in our culture, in the 21st century America, to absorb this. Just by living in the world in which we live, you can absorb this mentality. But to the degree that we buy it, we embrace the God of sloth. This is an important biblical principle. Let let him who is not willing to work not eat. At the same time, here's what I'd say to you this morning. Joblessness, hunger, poverty, they are complex. And do not be reductionistic in your understanding of them. So Tim Keller in his book, Ministries of Mercy, talks about not one, but three biblical reasons that poverty exists in our world today. Uh, One is personal sin, like sloth and related sins. One would be natural disaster, some kind of calamity happens, and you used to have a lot and have provision for yourself, and now you have nothing. And a third one is injustice and oppression. Often they're very intermixed, and it's very hard to separate some from the other. If you tend to be more of a conservative person, you probably focus really quickly onto that personal sin cause. If you're a more progressive or liberal person, you tend to probably focus in really fast on the injustice and oppression part. It's never that simple. It's, so, so what we need to do is have this full and comprehensive understanding of this and seek to walk with people through that. Related to this, another consideration, Paul is speaking here about a lifestyle. A lifestyle of an, of an unwillingness to work. Not an instance Uh, not a temporary season that happens in people's lives sometimes. He's talking also about a willingness to work because there are those situations where people who truly are willing to work can't find work. Uh, Motive here is critical. Motive here is also really difficult to discern in a lot of cases. So some people uh, are like Uncle Eddie in the vacation movies, if you're familiar with those. And I forget which one it's in, but it talks about how he... He's not been working for seven years, and when asked why, he says, 
he's holding out for a management position. Right? That's, that's not a valid willingness to work. Uh, and Proverbs, Proverbs has a lot of teachings about sloth specifically, and it pokes fun of that kind of attitude. It talks about a slothful person who doesn't get a job because if they go outside in the streets, a lion might be there, and a lion might eat them if they go in the streets, so it's safer just to stay in their house for their whole life. Uh, one that's maybe a little more rele- uh, relevant to central Pennsylvania, particularly this past week, uh, it floods sometimes here. It floods, so if you're inclined to say, well, if I got a job, I might have to cross the Susquehanna River or a creek to get there. I better not take a job at all. I better just stay home. Uh, this would not be a valid reason to not pursue work, to not labor diligently. There are other people, however, who are legitimately willing to work but struggle to find it. And here's what I'd say to you this morning. Unless that's happened to you, unless it does happen to you, unless it happens to someone that you love deeply and you're very involved in their life, you may never understand that. You may never understand that. Be slow to generalize. Be slow to pass judgment. A woman named Lorraine Miner, who counseled the residents of City Union Mission in Kansas City, uh, said, I've never encountered a client who wasn't willing to work. Most just don't have the opportunities or the confidence to pursue change. Now, the other command to, to the slothful themselves comes in verse 12. Look down at verse 12 with me. Do your work quietly and earn your own living. So apparently the Thessalonians were using some of this free time they had from not working to meddle in the affairs of other people. Uh, There's a great wordplay in the Greek here that the English translators have done a great job picking up on. Rather than being busy, the slothful are busy bodies. One of the evidences I think that we have of that in our society today are those who undertake these huge extensive arguments in the comments section of social media. If you can even call those comments, it's it's just... um, don't go there if you want to have like some hope in humanity. Let's put it that way. It will erode your hope in humanity very quickly. Um, others might be those who have been so termed slacktivists. You familiar with this term? Slacktivists? Um, people that criticize every aspect of life without actually living one of their own. People that criticize every aspect about what's going on in the government, in the world, in these organizations, from the comforts of their parents' basement, on their parents' computer, on their parents' couch. There's a, there's a difference here. I want to make sure this is clear, too. There's a difference between meddling in other people's affairs and what John talked about a little while ago, relational pursuit. Uh, the one another's of the New Testament. That's a bigger topic for a different day, but suffice it for this morning to say this. If we truly own the responsibilities that we have been given by God, if we truly step into those, we will not have the mental, emotional, and spiritual capacity to be up in everyone's business all the time, to critique everything all the time. We won't have the capacity to do that. The design of God is that there's certain responsibilities placed on your shoulders. If you really step into that, you'll run out of capacity and probably relatively quickly. Before we move on to Paul's commands for the community, let me say this. Uh, Most people in this room, from what I've observed, conversations I've gotten to have with you, getting to know with you, Uh, getting to know you. Most people in this room are not lazy or idle. Uh, From what I see, most of you are diligent workers and people who are not afraid of responsibility but own responsibility. But before we absolve ourselves of the sin of sloth, make sure that we're thinking comprehensively about it. So are you actually resting when you rest? Or are you passively consuming entertainment? Are you in your labors for work 
are you inclined to get-rich-quick schemes so that you don't really have to work hard? You can make a lot of money fast and then not work anymore. Do you, when you are at work, do you waste time at work? Or even more comprehensively than that, do you put off what you know you should be doing, the best uses of your time, simply to stay busy? That part in particular is convicting for me. Uh, no one has ever in the history of my life looked at my life and said, I think you're slothful, I think you're lazy. In fact, I've only ever heard concern that, that of, the, of the opposite, that I'm prone to overwork or workaholism. But when I keep my email inbox open all day and allow those constant interruptions to come up, when I check social media or news websites or sports scores uh, during the day, when I feel the need at night to turn the TV on because my brain isn't stopping and I need some kind of escape, what is that doing over months and years of doing that? What is that doing to my ability to be fully present, to be fully engaged with what's before me in that moment? What's that doing to my ability to concentrate deeply, to love people genuinely, to worship God fully. Though busy, my days, maybe this is true for you, your days can become not work and rest as God has designed, but instead just a fast-paced, activity-filled, yet mind-numbing, apathy-inducing state that will slowly chip away at our humanity. So don't dismiss sloth as someone else's sin because you feel busy Ask yourselves what you're actually busy with, and is it really the work and rest that you've been designed for? These are the commands to the slothful. Two other commands to the community around the slothful. First, in verse 6, keep away from any brother or sister walking in idleness. And then continue down in verse 14, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. One scholar refers to this as discipline by disassociation. Discipline by disassociation. And we'll just be able to skim the surface on this a little bit today. Church discipline is a topic that is really difficult to bring up. And it's also even more difficult to practice faithfully. Uh, There have been, and maybe you've experienced them yourselves, far too many misunderstandings uh, and misapplications, abuses of this concept. And if you've seen churches practice this at all, it's almost always only in the realm of sexual sin. It's like that sin needs church discipline, the other ones don't. But if we're going to be biblically faithful and consistent, and this is what 2 Thessalonians 3 is about, we, that a discipline like this, a form of discipline, is necessary for any kind of persistent, unrepentant sin, including this lifestyle of sloth, of idleness, that Paul is talking about here. So if after identifying this with someone, if, if after walking through them, with them through that, that is still met perpetually with this unrepentant persistence in sloth, a faithful response for the church is this disassociation that Paul talks about here. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? As is always the case when Paul talks about these things, it's for the good of everyone involved. For the good of everyone involved. It's for the good of the church, a reminder to take sin seriously. It's for the good of the world. So for the sake of the souls of men and women around us in the world, we don't let people think that this is what faithful, faithful discipleship, faithfully following Jesus looks like. Most importantly, it's for the good and the restoration of the person themselves, the slothful person in this case themselves. And feeling a tangible result of their sin, that's meant to wake them up to the precariousness of it. 
As Paul says here, they need to feel the right kind of shame. The right kind of shame. So let me explain that. Much of the shame that we experience in our lives is an unholy shame. Uh, A fear, a burden that God or others do not love us, do not accept us. And Jesus' salvation is God's answer to this kind of shame. We are loved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are accepted. But there's also a form of shame that is necessary and is good. Uh, Think about these two forms of shame. It's sometimes helpful to define them by their opposites. So the unholy form of shame, the opposite of that shame, is love and acceptance. And Jesus' death and resurrection is our answer to that. God does love and accept you. There's another kind of shame, the good kind of shame, the opposite of which is not love and acceptance, but shamelessness, brazenness. You know, in antiquated language, you would sometimes hear it said, you could maybe read this in novels or see it in old movies, someone look at another person who's living a particularly offensive or heinous life and say, have you no shame? It's that kind of shame. It's that kind of shame. A brazen rejection of God. And if that, if that gauge is off, if that gauge is non-existent in our hearts, that's disastrous for us. So we need something to jolt us out of that callous, desensitized way of life and back into reality. The word shame, I know, is a tough one to read in your Bible. Think about this from the whole counsel of God. Here's what I'd say about that. It is not God's ultimate work and intention to shame you. It is God's ultimate work and intention to expose your sin, resensitize you to it, in order to lead you to repentance, in order to lead you to him and full communion with him. And that's the point of discipline by disassociation. Down to verse 13, second command to the community. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Why does Paul say that here? Because it's weary to carry the burden of hard work when it feels like the people around you are slothful. Those who labor, those who toil, they are prone to grow weary and to give up. And so for the many of you in this room for whom this is true, the the, the hard workers, the heavy lifters, the ones who labor and toil the way that Paul did, heed Paul's words here, don't grow weary and give up. Experience instead genuine rest. And even like Jesus uh, in in his his, uh, interactions with Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, may you not neglect the one necessary thing of sitting at the feet of Jesus because of your labors and because of your toil. When hard workers grow weary, when they are prone to give up, when they become bitter at people who are slothful, it's often because we are neglecting that one necessary thing and we're beginning to view other people, slothful people, through our own self-righteous eyes rather than the eyes of Jesus. But as we've seen in Jesus' eyes, slothful people are undermining their very humanity. They're undermining their very humanity, and so they are to be the recipients of our compassion, not our condemnation. As Paul says in verse 15, we don't regard them as enemies, we regard them as brothers and sisters. So rather, as you may be inclined to do, as I found in my own heart, I'm inclined to do, rather than gripe and vent about other people, find gracious and loving ways to reflect their sloth back to them, and then invite them out of it and into something better, something life-giving and restorative. God uses his people, and this is Paul's point here, the church, 
to jolt people out of our sin. And so may we as Liberty Church always strive to be the kind of community to have the quality of relationships with one another that if and when the, the time for this kind of disassociation comes, that that actually means something. That, that someone actually feels that to the point that they are awakened from their callousness to sin, to the point that they might repent and might receive not only the grace of God, but the grace of the community to welcome them back in to full communion with God and his people. Lastly, briefly, the cure for sloth. We've considered the commandments of, about it. We've considered the counterfeit of it, the cure for sloth. Last week, uh, and I'll mention him, I'm sure, throughout this series, I, I introduced the 19th century Scottish pastor, Thomas Chalmers, and how he articulates this essential truth that you and I will only ever put sin to death by setting the affections of our heart on something better. And this is, especially, this is true for all sin. This is especially critical for the sin of sloth. Why? Because if you're prone to sloth, you are hopeless to put it to death by working hard. That's kind of the definition of sloth. Uh, you're not going to fight your sin by working hard if you're prone to sloth. That's just not going to work. So when you find this sin exposed in your heart, don't simply make promises to yourself or promises to God that you're going to become a hard worker. If you do that, if you try that, that might work for a couple weeks, but it will not be sustainable and it will fail to rip out this cardinal sin by the root. So what's the cure for sloth? It is to instead perceive more deeply the beautiful design of God and the redemption that has been purchased through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. To see clearly that you are made for work, that you are made for rest. And that in the kindness of God, he has afforded both of those to you. Sin has corrupted and distorted this. So it's sloth instead of service. And it's sloth instead of Sabbath. Sin has brought death into the world, which compounds and magnifies sloth because our lives are missed. We have but finite and limited time to use on this earth, and so sloth is even more weighty because of that. And, sin, and sloth attacks and seeks to undermine our very humanity by numbing us to the life that we were created to experience. But, praise God, not because of our work, but because of the great love with which he loved us. God, who is rich in mercy, came as a man into our corrupted and broken world. And he rested and he labored according to God's good design. And ultimately, by his labor, by his toil, by his work, he accomplished our salvation. Because of this, you and I actually can reclaim our humanity and we can use our precious mist of a life for matters of eternal weight and significance. And so the cure for sloth is to embrace and to embody this renewed, this ransomed life. I'll put it to you simply, the cure is to actually live your life. Actually live your life to experience the real joy and the real sorrow of a real life to pursue your God-given identity, to become who you are, and to always count the worth of this genuine good, of these genuine goods, as far surpassing the cost of the attendant labor that it requires. It's when the significance and the meaning of God's design and Jesus' redemption, the meaning that imparts upon every moment of our lives, including the most mundane ones, it's when we perceive that, that this counterfeit American God of sloth and the passive consumption of entertainment, that's when they die. 
That is where they go to die because they cannot hold a candle to the thrill of a real life before the face of God. So may you, as Nate even said earlier, live all of your life before the face of God. May you see every moment your work and your rest, your toil and your sleep as a moment in which to honor the life that you have been made for and to honor the one true God who made you for it. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us and we'll come to the table. Lord Jesus, you have made us for yourself. And we confess this morning that in our own heart, as well as in the culture that we live, we are prone to replace your good gifts with our corruptions of them. Forgive us for this and wake us up, not just to be self-disciplined and hard workers who become moralistic and self-righteous. Wake us up to the grace of the gospel that invites us, that calls us out of that and into the redeemed and renewed life in your image. Work and rest. Work and rest. We can do that, Jesus, because you have worked on our behalf. And we come to this table this morning seeing that, seeing that we can work and rest because you have accomplished our salvation by your body, by your blood. And so prepare us now as we come to again look upon your work, to by your Holy Spirit, by faith, receive your grace, be renewed in your grace today, that we might be people who seek to follow you, who image you well in our work and our rest. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.